Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. ASD? RAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Today on Terranauts, it's time to get back to talking about the Gemini program. We left the Gemini program in June of 1965, as Jim McDivitt and Ed White were coming back to land at the end of Gemini 4. As you'll recall, Gemini 4 was being celebrated as a massive success, mostly because of Ed White's EVA, which was a first for NASA, and in some ways really a first for the world. Although the Soviets had performed the world's first EVA a few weeks earlier, um, it was, and this was largely what encouraged NASA to even attempt an EVA on Gemini 4, um, that Soviet EVA had really kind of been performed in secret. There was no real-time live TV audience for Alexei Leonov's spacewalk. In fact, even after it was triumphantly announced, there really wasn't a whole lot of documentary footage of the event, even. Now, Ed White's adventures, on the other hand, were carried live in living color all around the planet. The images of that event inspired the world, and in fact, they continue to be iconic. Just try Googling spacewalk. So, while it was true that an American astronaut was not the first to exit his spacecraft and walk in space, Ed White was the first human to do it in full view of the rest of humanity, live and unedited, and that made a difference. It certainly let NASA claim with confidence that they were done taking a backseat to anyone, and that made a difference too. In a very real sense, Gemini 4 and Ed White's spectacular EVA were a turning point for NASA. Now, that fact would take a bit of time to emerge, but to those deeply involved in Gemini, it was as clear as the pictures of Ed White floating above the blue background of the slowly rotating Earth. But for all that, the success of Gemini 4 had been ad, a bit ad hoc. As I already noted, the whole EVA task had only been added to the flight a few weeks before launch and had required a substantial effort to get the crew and ground controllers ready for it. And this kind of effort, while impressive, was not going to get NASA where it really wanted to go, which by 1965 was the surface of the moon. So we should remember that whatever role Gemini 4 played in inspiring confidence inside NASA and compliments from outside NASA, both in the United States and internationally, the real role of Gemini 4 was, of course, to help get NASA ready to go to the moon in less than five years. So let's just go back and take a look at how Gemini was supposed to contribute to the big goal. If you recall, Gemini was set up as a direct successor to Mercury. Now, the Apollo program was already up and running and focused on how to get a human to the surface of the moon and back again when Gemini was set up. But there were some key assumptions that the Apollo program had to make in order to get on with the task of designing that mission and those spacecraft and rockets that would be part of it. And the first of these assumptions was that it was possible 
to complete a rendezvous, station keeping, and docking of two spacecraft in orbit around the Earth, or in fact, maybe around the Moon. In the end, both would be required, as we shall one day talk about, I'm sure. But in 1962, when Gemini was being stood up, it wasn't completely clear how the ability to rendezvous and dock would be used, but it was clear that never having done it was a huge risk to the Apollo program, and that needed to be addressed. So, learning how to do rendezvous and docking became one of Gemini's major goals. The second major assumption that Apollo was forced to make that in 1962 was still very much untested was actually that human beings could live and work effectively in space for periods of at least seven or eight days. Uh, All of the Apollo mission profiles required astronauts to be away from the Earth for at least that long. Those scenarios also assumed that the astronauts would need to perform mission-critical functions and technically challenging tasks all the way through those missions. Uh, Tasks including not only landing on and taking off from the moon, but also multiple rendezvous procedures and multiple rocket motor firings, including the one for their re-entry trajectory that would be critical to getting them home safely. So in 1962 and 63, when Gemini was still working towards flight, there was significant doubt and significant disagreement in the medical community about whether it was reasonable to expect humans to be able to actually survive in space for that kind of duration, much less be able to perform complex physical and mental tasks. This may seem strange to us today, living in an era when humans regularly spend months on orbit. But until Gemini 4, the longest any American had been on orbit was a bit more than a day. Now, Soviet cosmonauts had been on orbit much longer, but NASA was hearing worrying news from international conferences and other sources. There was evidence that there were some serious concerns about the effects of even multiple days on orbit on human physiology and psychology. So, the second important experience that Gemini was intending to provide to NASA was the experience with extended-duration spaceflight up to and beyond the time required to fly a lunar mission. The third objective of the Gemini program had actually been to provide the experience of having astronauts operating outside their spacecraft, so-called extravehicular activity. Now, Apollo really did not envision the need for routine EVAs in space, but obviously a major part of the Apollo program would include astronauts walking and working on the surface of the moon, which was an extravehicular activity. There were also um, a number of possible contingencies that might require Apollo astronauts to perform an EVA to solve problems or perform repairs, and no one wanted to get to the point where one of those contingencies had to be exercised without having had any experience of EVAs. So, EVA became the third major objective of the Gemini program. Okay, so at the conclusion of Gemini 4, the second of ten planned Gemini missions, where was the program on working through those major objectives? Well, the major achievement of the mission had been Ed White's EVA. Uh, That had gone so well, in fact, that NASA management decided that EVA could be checked off the list, at least uh, initially, and so no more EVAs were planned for the next four. Gemini missions. Um, In the end, EVA would give NASA a bit of a nasty shock, proving in some ways to actually be the hardest of the three goals to master. Um, That's a story for later missions. At the end of Gemini 4, EVA was seen as being well in hand. 
progress on long-duration spaceflight was progressing as Gemini 4 had extended NASA's experience to four days on orbit, uh, which was literally four times as long as Gordon Cooper had done at the end of his final Mercury flight. Still, Gemini 4 did not set a record for time on orbit. Um, That had been set by the Soviets at just shy of five days on orbit. Crucially, as well, four days was really the limit that NASA could achieve uh, with the initial Gemini capsule design, which relied on batteries to provide the electrical power. Getting beyond four days required that the batteries be replaced by fuel cells, which were still very much untried and upon which much of the drama on Gemini 5 would rest. So, really, long-duration flight was still very much an objective which Gemini had not yet met. Similarly, rendezvous and docking was a firmly unchecked box after Gemini 4. In fact, Jim McDivitt's experience at the start of Gemini 4 had done nothing at all to encourage NASA about its ability to solve this one very critical problem. I mean, not only had McDivitt been unable to rendezvous with the Gemini booster vehicle after separation, he really hadn't even gotten close, and he hadn't really gotten any better at the task as he practiced it. But the only thing that Gemini 4 proved was that just letting an astronaut, even an experienced test pilot, fly a rendezvous by eye and um, uh, the seat of his spacesuit wasn't going to work. So, the EVA box had uh, at least partially been checked, uh, but NASA needed to use Gemini 5 to make some progress on rendezvous and on long-duration flight. Eh, but there was a problem, or rather a couple of problems. In the case of rendezvous and docking, the problem wasn't with Gemini, it was with the Agena target vehicle. And its name kind of doesn't really do it justice, The Agena was based on an upper-stage rocket and guidance system developed by the U.S. Air Force uh, to complete orbital insertion and deployment of satellites. It featured its own restartable main engine, rated for 16,000 pounds of thrust, and its own guidance system for precision placement of uh, payload satellites. In effect, the Agena was a 25-foot-long, 5-foot-diameter spacecraft on its own. It weighed in at around 9 tons at launch. It was launched by an Atlas rocket, similar to the ones that had launched the Mercury capsule. Far from being a simple target, it was much more of a second space vehicle being developed for the Gemini program. Unfortunately, it has to be said that it, (laughs) it wasn't really managed that way. In fact, you know, it's probably safe to say that the development of the Agena target vehicle could probably be used as a case study on how to do just about everything wrong in running a major procurement program and succeed anyways, albeit probably at much higher cost and at much longer schedule than should have been required. The problems on Agena started early, almost as soon as the Agena was selected as the basis for the target vehicle. In the early days of Gemini, recall that the importance of rendezvous testing, uh, the rendezvous testing objective had not yet completely crystallized because the Apollo program had not yet selected the Lunar Rendezvous mission profile as the way it was going to get to the surface of the Moon. As such, rendezvous testing was expected to be part of Gemini, but it wasn't yet an element in which the program wanted to invest a significant amount of time. So, the Agena was selected because it was seen as an already mature vehicle, to which only small modifications were needed. It was virtually an off-the-shelf solution. 
I will pause so that any of you with actual government procurement experience can finish groaning and rolling your eyes heavenward. Uh, for the rest of the audience, I will just say that there is a very wide highway to procurement hell that is paved with the words off the shelf. If you ever want to find a government program that went off the rails and exceeded its budget and its schedule by egregious amounts, just start by looking for one that intended to buy an off-the-shelf solution, but with a few minor modifications. Oh dear. In this case, NASA wanted to procure an Agena vehicle fitted with a radar transponder so that it could be seen by the Gemini's radar, and with a docking mechanism that would allow it to attach to the Gemini spacecraft on orbit. Okay. But they also wanted to ensure that the engine could be restarted multiple times on orbit so that it could be used to reboost the Gemini vehicle once they docked. They also wanted it to be able to perform its own precise maneuvers during the rendezvous phase, so they wanted improvements to the existing orbit maneuvering thrusters on the spacecraft as well. Um, in short, NASA wanted to actually develop effectively two new rocket engines for their off-the-shelf target vehicle. Oh dear. Now, these two rocket engines were not going to be developed by the prime contractor Lockheed. Oh no. They were instead to be developed by a subcontractor, Bell Aerospace. But, because the Agena target vehicle had been developed by Lockheed for the U.S. Air Force, the Agena contract was going to be managed by the United States Air Force. To make matters worse, the Agena work would be combined with the program to procure the Atlas booster that would loft the Agena. To make matters worse than that, the Atlas Agena program would be folded into the program office that was actually developing the Gemini Titan launch vehicle as well. And to make matters even worse than that, the whole project office would not even report to the Gemini program it would report to the Marshall Space Flight Center, which at the time handled all of NASA's booster programs. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. So, of course, uh, the first thing that happened was that Agena became a bit of an afterthought. And then, Gemini's first financial crisis hit. At the same time, the Agena program announced, through three levels of program management, that not only did it need more money, but that it was already overspending. Thank you very much. Uh, the net result was that Gemini basically told the Agena program to stop work, and that they would let them know if they were ever going to be needed at all. Thank you very much. Well, then the Apollo program decided that it was going to use the Lunar Rendezvous mission profile after all, and Rendezvous suddenly became a much more interesting topic around Project Gemini. So, the Air Force and Lockheed were invited to restart work on Agena. But lo and behold, they needed to inform NASA that, of course, with all of the delays and the stretching of funding, um, they would need even more funds, and of course, more time, to accomplish what they had originally agreed to. And all of this was while they were still in the process of designing those very small changes that were required. So, ultimately, the Gemini program agreed, but, in order to accommodate the budget and schedule changes, they were forced to move the rendezvous missions out to at least the fifth Gemini flight, which, if you're keeping score, was actually going to be Gemini 6. This seemed to provide lots of slack in the Agena schedule. That was not 
the end by any means of the Aegean saga, but we'll pick up that sad tale in a later episode. But for now, let's just say that it had been known for some time that the Aegean was not going to be ready for Gemini 5. Uh, nonetheless, even without the fully capable rendezvous target, engineers and astronauts were anxious to start flexing their rendezvous muscles, and this desire uh, was certainly heightened after Jim McDivitt's experience on Gemini 4. Now, because Agena's issues were well known and had been for a while, Gemini engineers had been thinking about a workaround that would allow them to do at least some limited rendezvous and docking testing without needing a second vehicle. This workaround would eventually become known as the Rendezvous Evaluation Pod, and it had been suggested by McDonnell Aerospace. This rendezvous pod was basically a small battery-powered module with a radar transponder and a radar beacon and a flashing light. Uh, the whole package weighed about 30 kilograms, and while it could not be maneuvered and did not include any kind of docking interface, it would provide a target that would allow Gemini astronauts to test the onboard rendezvous radar and allow the Gemini team to practice rendezvous maneuvering. It could be carried aloft and jettisoned once the Gemini spacecraft was established on orbit. So, the decision was made that even though Gemini 5 could not be a full rendezvous mission, the rendezvous pod would fly, and the flight would include some basic rendezvous testing. Now, the second problem that was of concern to NASA mission planners as they started down the home stretch to Gemini 5 was the issue of fuel cells. These fuel cells were the key to extending the mission duration beyond a few days. Uh, they were also brand new technology and one that had had its share of issues during development. Fuel cells were necessary because the simple method of providing power, chemical batteries, had a significant limitation, and that limitation was their size and weight. Because there's basically a fixed ratio between the amount of energy that can be stored in a battery and the size and weight of that battery. And that ratio meant that it was not really possible to stuff more than about four days' worth of power into batteries, and into the Gemini spacecraft. So, a different method of generating power had to be found. The method that was chosen was called the alkaline or bacon fuel cell. It had been invented about 30 years earlier by English inventor Frank Francis Thomas Bacon. But while the concept had been around for a while, a version that was reliable and safe enough to be used to power a vehicle, much less a spacecraft, didn't exist. The concept of a fuel cell is not all that different than a battery, actually, to be fair. Like a battery, the fuel cell generates an electrical current using an electrochemical cell. Uh, on one side of the cell, the anode, a chemical reaction known as a reduction reaction, liberates electrons, which then flow through an external circuit and are reabsorbed on the other side of the cell, at the cathode, in an oxidation reaction. The cell is filled with an electrolyte that provides some of the reactants for those two reactions. It's the sum part that makes a fuel cell different than a battery. In a battery, the electrolyte contains all of the reactants available to the cell, and as the chemical reaction proceeds, those reactants are used up and the battery eventually discharges. In a fuel cell, only half the reactants for both the oxidation and reduction reactions are present in the electrolyte, and in fact, uh, the reactants are produced on one side and consumed on the other, so to get the reaction going and to maintain it, the other half of the reaction products are fed to the fuel cell from external sources. 
In this way, the fuel cell will actually continue to generate electrical current so long as the fuel is being provided to it. Now, while all that sounds a little complicated, it becomes much simpler when you know that the two external reactants are hydrogen and oxygen, and that the product of the fuel cell is electricity and water. It was a pretty straightforward, clean source of energy that could last as long as the supplies of hydrogen and oxygen that were supplying it lasted. The issue was not with the basic concept or the chemistry. Now, those had been known um, for a while, obviously. The devil, instead, turned out to be in the mechanical and fluid dynamic details of how to supply the oxygen and hydrogen in exactly the right quantities and at the right vapor pressures to regulate the reaction so that the electrical current was stable and predictable as an electrical load on it was applied and then varied over time. Oh yes, and do all of that while surrounded by a vacuum in a thermal environment that could fluctuate by a couple hundred degrees, depending on whether or not the spacecraft was in direct sunlight or in the shadow on the night side of the Earth. In the end, General Electric spent most of 1962 and 1963 on a design that simply couldn't be made to work, and eventually had to be redesigned mechanically pretty much from scratch. And so even though the original plan for Gemini was that the spacecraft would always be powered by fuel cells, uh, in the end, fuel cells lagged so far behind that the first unmanned and the first two manned missions were planned using only batteries, um, since they were short enough duration that that would work. Still, even though there were major questions about the fuel cell technology, there really was no room in the flight manifest to fly another mission where fuel cells um, could be flown without making them critical to the flight's success. The, matter, the fact of the matter was that fuel cells and their attendant hydrogen and oxygen tanks were large and heavy enough that, in order to make room for them, most of the batteries had to be taken out. It was possible to retain enough battery power for maybe 24 hours, and that at reduced power. So it was pretty much all or nothing. And Gemini 5 was planned for a full eight-day duration, which would depend almost entirely on its fuel cell. In fact, Gordon Cooper proposed a mission patch for Gemini 5s that pictured a covered wagon and the motto, Eight Days or Bust. Uh, but NASA management feared the fallout if the mission did not actually go the full, full eight days, envisioning worldwide media stories calling the mission and the program a bust. So the covered wagon survived, but the slogan did not. So Gemini 5 was to be focused on extended duration flight, with planned eight-day duration. NASA would not only set, but actually nearly double the previous record of uh, about 119 hours set by the Soviets. And, despite the juggling of flight priorities to accommodate the various developmental systems on Gemini, NASA had good cause for confidence when Gemini 4 splashed down. Now, to date, we have focused our attention on the spacecraft itself, but the fact of the matter was that Gemini 4 actually was a real test of a lot of other systems that NASA had been developing and deploying that were necessary for Gemini's success, and also importantly for Apollo to be able to proceed towards, it, towards its objectives as well. And NASA had good reason to be pleased with the progress that had been made and demonstrated. And Gemini 4 was the first mission to be run completely out of the new mission control facility at the Manned Space Flight Center in Houston. 
For the first time, the flight control team, or rather teams, had not had to travel to Florida to support a mission. Uh, the importance of that fact lay not only in the efficiency gained by not having to have a bunch of people traveling, but also by virtue of the fact that it meant that the flight controllers now lived and worked next door to their flight control facility. So they could get training and perform simulations, not in a mock-up, but in the actual facility where they would support the flights. And this was a crucial step forward because it allowed NASA not only to rapidly assimilate new flight controllers, but also to allow the flight control team to start preparing to support operations on orbit that they'd never tried before, including rendezvous, station keeping, and docking, as well as extended EVAs, to say nothing of maneuvers that would be necessary to travel to and return from the moon. And maybe it's important to remember here the state of flight control at the start of the Gemini program. Um, as at the end of Gemini 3, Gemini 3, still NASA had only ever flown one mission that was longer than eight hours, meaning that only during Gordon Cooper's final Mercury flight had mission control ever needed more than one flight control shift. It meant that other than Chris Kraft, who was the NASA flight director until Cooper's flight, only one other human being, Rich Hodge, and actually sat in the flight director's chair, and then only for a little more than eight hours, while Gordon Cooper slept on orbit. So it was not only the astronauts that would have to learn how to work in space for an extended duration, it was also very much the flight controllers on the ground that would have to learn as well. And again, uh, the transition that this represented should not really be underestimated. Uh, first of all, round-the-clock staffing of MCC meant three shifts of flight controllers. And, since the Gemini flight control team was bigger than Mercury's had been, this meant expanding the flight control team to about maybe five times what it had been on Mercury. And bear in mind, there was nowhere in the world that anyone could learn the craft of being a flight controller. It was a job that was only practiced in Houston and maybe Moscow. So, all of those new flight controllers not only had to be found and hired, they also had to be trained, literally, from the ground up. New systems had to be learned by figuratively, and sometimes literally, taking them apart and putting them back together again, while continuing, ask to, continually asking questions like, okay, what happens if this part fails? How will that failure be identified? Will it be identified? How will it affect other systems? What will the ground see when that goes wrong? What will we do about it? What will we be able to do about it? These new systems uh, included some fairly mundane and routine things like power and flight control systems, but also brand new systems for environmental control, new communications technologies, and of course, a brand new booster. And in addition, uh, brand new disciplines like EVA and, to some extent, guidance, navigation, and control for rendezvous and docking had to be invented from scratch. Uh, from that perspective, uh, for anyone who's been involved in building an engineering organization of that magnitude, and the two years between Cooper's flight and the flight of Gemini 4 doesn't really seem like a long time at all. And remember that for a dress rehearsal, all the team got was three orbits of Gemini 3 while acting as the backup to the primary flight control team in Florida. Now, in addition to finding, assimilating, and training all of that new staff, the NASA flight controllers also had to basically invent 
a new method of doing flight control around the clock. And we talked a little bit about this in a previous episode. Um, but the system that was developed, you know, survived through Apollo and with modification into the space shuttle era, and actually vestiges of it persist today on the space shuttle program. To basically manage a 24-hour day, the flight control team was split into three shifts, and the shifts were scheduled to work in MCC basically according to the crew's day. The first shift, with Kraft as the flight director, would be with the crew basically from the time they woke up through much of their working day. Now, most of the significant flight activities were planned for this shift. After that, Gene Kranz's team would take over, and this shift would be primarily focused on systems engineering, working with the crew to characterize how the spacecraft systems were performing, and to investigate any anomalies that had not been serious enough to prevent operations from continuing, but which were serious enough that they needed to be understood and resolved, or for which workarounds for future operations might need to be developed. The third shift, known as the planning shift, and headed by Rich Hodge, would take over as the crew were going to their rest or sleep period. This shift would work through the results of the day's operations and the analysis performed during the systems engineering shift, and they'd conduct further analysis and make adjustments to the flight plan to accommodate anything that had to change based on what had been learned to that point in the flight. It was actually a good and sensible system, and it's proved its durability over the years. But Gemini 4 was literally the first time that that new system of doing flight control could be tried. Uh, with new flight controllers, in a new mission control center, in a new flight control room, with new and newfangled digital flight control consoles. The fact that not much is made in the published histories about how big a risk all of that really was is a testament to how well it actually went. Flight control for Gemini 4 basically went off without a hitch. Uh, no doubt there were all sorts of little squawks raised by the flight controllers. No doubt some console layouts were adjusted, comm loops were modified, documents and procedures were scrubbed and updated. But Gemini 4 revealed no significant issues with the whole process of flight control. And while that received and receives much less attention than Ed White's spacewalk, it was arguably an even more impressive achievement in terms of planning and execution of a pretty massive engineering project. Now, in addition to creating and training the flight control team, the other system that was getting a pretty good workout during the spring and early summer of 1965 was actually the NASA crew training system. Now, see, during Mercury, all of the astronauts had undergone common initial and familiarization training, and they all, of course, kept current as pilots. But there was only ever two astronauts that were doing any level of training for flight at one time, the primary astronaut and his backup. Uh, but with the increased cadence of flights on Gemini, three flights in less than five months from Gemini 3 to Gemini 5, and with two-man crews for Gemini missions, NASA now had to manage the training flow for up to 12 astronauts at a time. Just finding simulator time for all the crews crews proved to be a significant challenge, because NASA had only invested, actually, in one simulated Gemini capsule. In fact, in order to get their own simulator time, the flight control team in Houston resorted to building their own engineering simulator, which was basically made of cardboard with printouts of the flight systems and controls. 
And even though the training system showed some stress, uh, particularly just before Gemini 3 and then again during the run-up to Gemini 4 when all the stops were being pulled out to design and test Ed White's EVA procedures, adjustments were made, lessons were learned, and all the crews arrived at the pad confident in their ability not only to fly their planned missions, uh, but also to respond to contingencies that came their way. Although, yes, in fact, that's not completely true. Um, the training system it, uh, was the thing that generated the last small delay in the launch of Gemini 5. Um, the two months between the end of Gemini 4 and the original planned Gemini 5 launch date of 9th of August eh, was just not enough time for Gordon Cooper and Pete Conrad to get all of the time they needed in the simulators uh, once they were able to get to the front of the queue. So, the Gemini 5 launch was slipped 10 days to the 19th of August. And then, of course, Mother Nature had her say. As the crew boarded their capsule in the morning of the 19th of August, the weather was borderline. It was a hot and humid morning, perfect breeding ground for that staple of central Florida summer weather, the severe thunderstorm. The forecast indicated the storms were likely, but the launch team decided to press on. Eh, but Mother Nature was not to be denied, and the thunderstorm not only moved in over the launch site, but the uh, power station at the launch site suffered a lightning strike that caused enough fluctuation in various systems that the flight control team, no doubt with memories of the previous summer and the havoc wrought by successive lightning strikes and hurricanes, um, decided not to push their luck any further, and the launch was scrubbed for weather. But two days later, the crew was back aboard, and this time, the countdown proceeded without significant incident, and at exactly 9 a.m., the Titan GLV came to life and boosted the Gemini 5 crew to orbit. They would be there for longer than any other humans ever had been before. It would not be long, however, before NASA's worst fears about the fuel cell technology would in some ways be realized, but it would also not be long before NASA's new flight control system would rise to the occasion in response. Um, but that'll have to be a topic for next time on Terranauts, because that's all the time we have for this episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.